Let me add my welcome uh, to the chorus of welcomes. As Colton said, my name is Phil Pearson, and I am and will be the ministry director here at St. Pete's. I'm not going anywhere. Um, let me start off with prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father God, um, Son and Spirit, we give thanks on this Trinity Sunday that you are a God of love, God who is love, um, and you invite us to receive your love and to spread that into the world around us. Um, with this sermon, what is of you, let it rise up. And what is not, let it fall away, and let us be affected by your goodness, to be transformed in by it again and again. In your name, amen. Well, um, let me start off with some exciting news. The grade four to six is are going to go with Chandler right now. I'm getting the wave. If there are grade four to sixes, head with Chandler. Let me start off with some exciting news. Um, if you've been traveling with St. Pete's for several years, you know that we were in a multi-year journey in the book of Luke. And many people had been asking me all year, when are we going back to Luke? Well, in two weeks, we will finally be returning to our multi-year journey in the book of Luke. Um, and if you want to catch up, there's 50 sermons to listen to on YouTube. And I, What? 57 sermons to listen to, just an easy catch-up, a nice light week of listening um, to several different people. If you just want to read it, we're going to be catching up at Luke 12, so just 11 chapters to read. Um, And for those of you who are keeners like Colton that were writing the whole thing that we invited you to do, we're going to start that back up. Um, We invite you to handwrite the entire book of Luke along with us, kind of chapter by chapter as we go. Um, So I have a lot of writing to catch up with. My hand is going to get some cramps. But in two weeks, we're going to be starting back in Luke. And my original plan was actually to start this week. But as Lloyd and I were charting out the series um, and planning things out, he said, well, today is Trinity Sunday. And as someone who is still learning the Christian calendar, I responded, what is Trinity Sunday? And I think probably a question many of us have today. And and Lloyd responded, it's a day where we preach about and celebrate the Trinity. Um, In a typical Anglican service, we would also recite the Athanasian Creed instead of the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. The Athanasian Creed is 100 lines long, over 600 words. um, And we struggle with the Apostles and Nicene for time, so... We've just kept it with the Nicene this week, but I'll be touching on the Athanasian Creed as we go. Um, but And next week, Richard is going to actually be preaching his final sermon as a deacon before he's priested uh, later that day. But technically, once a deacon, always a deacon, but it'll be his last sermon before he becomes a priest. But today is Trinity Sunday, so we're going to be starting with Trinity And before I get into begin exploring this great mystery of God and Trinity, I want to lay out a couple assumptions that I have going in that I think are important to highlight right off the bat anytime we talk about God. So these are my three assumptions, and Colton warmed you guys up. So number one, um, first, yes, this is great. This is the most audience participation we've ever had. First, God is bigger and larger and more wonderful than we can ever understand. This is number one. In Isaiah, God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In our post-enlightened modern world, we have this temptation and pride in ourselves that we can comprehend God, that if we sit and think long enough, we can actually understand all the intricacies of the infinite. And you may not say that, but there's ways that we live that out. So I want to highlight right off the bat, This will not contain all of God. God is bigger and larger, more wonderful than we can ever understand. Are you with me there? Okay. Number two, 
What we know about God has been revealed to us by God. And this is an important one, and one actually at the heart of the Christian faith is we only know God because he has shown himself to us. We cannot actually sit on a beautiful mountain looking out over wonderful Vancouver and the trees and the ocean and think up, oh, this is what God must be. We, what we know about God, we believe, is revealed to us through Jesus. And this comes up in the passage that we read today. But it's the same way you know a partner or a best friend. is You can see them from a distance and, and surmise things about them, but you don't really know them in their heart until they sit with you, until they open up their life to you, until they tell you and show you what they love. And we believe it's the same with God. We only know things about God because he's revealed himself to us. And the third is this, number three, great, oh, sorry, normal American, North American style instead of German style, three. Um, the goal of theology is to come to know God more, not to know more about God. It's subtle but different, right? The goal of theology is to come to know God more, not simply to come to know more about God. Because what I notice, having been um, done my undergrad in theology and speaking with many people, is we always have a danger of treating God like a cadaver. We can slice him up and point to the different muscles and tendons and point to the different doctrines and ideas, and we can treat him as an impersonal object. That is not the goal of theology. Theology is to know God more, to experience his love, and to give that love back. And so I put those at the beginning because when we begin to talk about theology and, or Trinity, it can become very dense, but I don't want us to move away from that idea. Our goal today is to know God more, not simply to know more about him. How does that sound? Can we agree on those assumptions? Okay, great. Well, let me read um, our passages once more. And great job for Natasha because I gave you tongue twisters of passages today, and I'm probably going to struggle with them myself. So let me read one more time. In First John, or in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came to witness, as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And, through the wor- and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, not born of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And the second reading is from John 17, and it it is found in this large collection of Jesus speaking. So these are Jesus' words. If you're looking in a physical Bible, you might see the red letters. Jesus says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as, as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want, you, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me, and I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so Trinity is a very complex idea, and today I want to explore it, and I really just want to focus on one single question, which is, Why do we need the doctrine of the Trinity? Or why do we believe that God is Trinity? Why is that important? Because if you're new to faith or exploring faith, or if you've been around the church a long time, the concept of the Trinity gets a little wild and confusing. For those of you who haven't grown up in church or are new to the idea, Trinity is this idea that God is not simply one, but is three in one, is triune. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of them are one God. Have I lost you yet? No? Okay, well, if you've already comprehended it, I invite someone else to come up, because it is a complex and confusing idea in which we actually come to the end of language. But what's confusing for many people as they begin exploring the Christian faith is the word Trinity, three in one, this concept, it doesn't show up in the Bible. And that is a little confusing when the Bible is kind of the basis of the Christian belief. So why do we believe in the Trinity? Tertullian, the church father who first introduced the word Trinity in the second century, he writes this. And you'll notice that it was actually um, partly in the collect that Shannon read. It says, we worship unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the person nor dividing the substance. There is, the, there is one person of the Father another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. That's a mouthful to try to describe a basic focus point of our Christian doctrine. The doctrine of the Trinity we would consider a core belief for Christianity. It is a dogma. It is the center point of what we believe. But because it's not in Scripture, it can be challenging and confusing for us. So I just want to wrestle with this question. Why do we believe in the Trinity? Why did Tertullian and other church fathers think up this idea or give this idea language and then make it a a statement that we say every week? The Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian Creed, they all testify to this idea of Trinity. And I think some of us, we can just accept it without thinking, but we have to ask this question, why? Why do we believe in the doctrine of Trinity? Why does it help shape and form our beliefs? And to me, there's two things that it's going to help answer. The Trinity makes sense of Jesus and Scripture, and the Trinity makes sense of love. And then finally, there's going to be an invitation of worship at the end. So let's first start with how the Trinity addresses Scripture or why it is there. The reason that the doctrine of the Trinity came about is the early church fathers in the first, second, and third century, they were reading through and poring over scriptures. And they were trying to give language to a mystery at work in front of them. And the mystery comes up because of Jesus. 
See, up until Jesus, the idea of monotheism makes total and complete sense in Jewish theology. Um, there is one God, Yahweh. There are no others. He is the only Yahweh. He is the only God. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is almighty and everlasting. He is alpha and omega. And there are many characteristics described about God, Yahweh, but he is the only one. And sometimes he is even referred to from Israel's perspective as father, um, or not Israel's perspective as father. In Isaiah, it says this, For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize or acknowledge us, O Lord, you are our father. And the ancient Hebrew prayer, the Shema, it gives very clear language for God being one. It says this, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as Christians today, we would say, yeah, we're monotheists. We believe in one God. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, he muddies the waters of monotheism, you could say. Because he starts saying things like this, Father, you are in me, and I am in you. I and the Father are one. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, and has made him known. Or as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Or Paul later writes, Jesus being in very nature God. See, once Jesus comes onto the scene, the constraints and understanding of a normal monotheistic God crack a little bit. It makes it more challenging because Jesus recognizes himself as the presence of God on earth, and yet he refers to God in heaven, and he refers to God as his father while making a wild claim about himself that he is God. Are you following? Okay, we're here. The clean image of a single, infinite, almighty God as one becomes a little broken up. And then it is even further confounded when Jesus talks about the Spirit, the Spirit of God that he is sending after his ascension, that the Spirit of God will be with them, and he says the Spirit is God as well. And so these early theologians, Tertullian and the like, they were reading through Scripture, and they said, how do we describe this? That God is is the Father above, that God is Jesus, and God is the Spirit that is here with us. How do we give this language? And so you could say they created the doctrine of the Trinity. Created is probably not the right word. They gave language to. They looked at what was in front of them, this great mystery, and they tried to say, we describe this as Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they were very specific that each one is distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Each is distinct. Each is separate, yet each are God, the Trinity. Like I said, we come to the end of language here. And so these these early church fathers, they're saying we're monotheists, but we're triune monotheists. We believe in one God that is in three persons, and we believe in it because we think that it shows itself there in Scripture. They're pointing to a mystery that cannot quite be solved and trying to give it the best possible language for us to hold. Are you with me? Okay, am I with me? Okay. So, first, 
Um, and this is so important because it holds Jesus's divinity and humanity, which was a very important understanding in the early church. There was so much heresy that first came up, that came up in the first and second century in which people were saying, no, 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 Jesus was only a man or was an avatar of God or something else. But they said, no, Jesus is Jesus. He is God and man. God is God in heaven. Jesus is God here. And then the spirit comes as well, each distinct yet all one. So the the doctrine of the Trinity is needed to understand who Jesus is, who the Spirit is, and who the Father is. It gives us language to understand what's going on at Scripture, and it's a lens through which we can read all Scripture. So then when we read a verse like Genesis 1 where it says, in the beginning, um, where it says God made man in the image, what am I trying to say? God says, let us make man in our image. We look back on that, as Trinitarian. There are Jewish brothers and sisters, they would not read that as Trinitarian because they have a different view of God being one. And so we look back through the Old Testament, through all of it, with a lens of a Trinitarian view of God. And we read a different way in the Old and New Testament. Let's give our brains a little bit of a break because that was some dense theology that we were just wrestling through. And let's talk about something different. Has anyone ever seen the Jodie Foster film Contact, 1997? Okay, fantastic film. It's a, it's a movie in which Jodie Foster is pursuing the intelligent life beyond Earth. And there's this beautiful scene. She's in this spaceship, and she's looking through this window. And she sees this beautiful celestial movement in, in space. And she says this incredible line. She says, they should have sent a poet. They should have sent a poet. Because there's so many things where we come to the end of, of normal, rational language, right? And we, we need poets, we need metaphors, we need song, we need better imagery to understand things. And, and this is what we ultimately come to always when we talk about the Trinity, because you'll, you've probably heard the Trinity is like. And the Trinity is like is a statement of poetry because it, it utilizes metaphor, and metaphor is one of the strongest parts of all poetry. Not just rhyme scheme, metaphor. The Trinity is like. So you've probably heard things like the Trinity is like an egg. It is a white, a yolk, and a shell. (laughs) And I was just thinking, it's like an egg. It can kill Phil. Phil is allergic to eggs. The Trinity is too great. The Trinity is like water. It can be a liquid, a solid, or a vapor. Or the Trinity is like a man. It can be a husband, a son, or a father. Whenever we come to start talking about the Trinity, we have to start using this metaphorical language. Or The favorite one that I've come across is from this theologian and musician, Jeremy Begbie. And he makes this incredible case that when it comes to talking about the Trinity, visual imagery always fails. And I love this because he's like, you can't take red and blue and overlap them. You can't see both at the same time in the same place. Red and blue become purple. But he's like, but when you go with sound, you can actually engage with different parts of theology and the Trinity. And so he brings up and he says the Trinity is like a C chord or a a chord on a piano because each note is distinct. Whenever you play a note on the piano, it sends out a sound wave, a distinct vibration moving through the air until it makes contact with your ear and becomes a noise you can recognize. And each note always sends out the same sound wave. But when you play all three, all three sound waves go out, but they overlap and intersect and move. And if you have an ear to hear, 
You can hear all three at once. But if you let yourself, you can also just be overwhelmed with the music that is being made all as one. And I love that imagery, or not even that imagery, I love that sound, that idea. The, the Trinity is like music, hitting your ears, overlapping and intersecting. It's a C chord, three distinct things in one. So metaphors, they can help us think through this. They can help give language. They can be our poets as we look at the beauty of the Trinity. But they also have a danger. We can, there's a, a danger in talking about metaphors because they can lead us down the wrong path if we take them too far. Take, for instance, um, the Trinity is like water, which it says it's mist, liquid, and solid. That actually is not a Trinitarian theology. It's something called modalism, which means basically God puts on different masks. It's one God, and then he's like, today I'm Jesus, today I'm the Spirit, today I'm the Father. And because it can never be three states at once. But anyways... Metaphors help us, but they can only help us so far, is what I'm trying to say. So we need to always hold them loosely, but let them enamor us, you could say. So let's get back to the second thing. That's a, a, a brain, a palate cleanser before we get back into dense theology. So we know that the Trinity is there to help us make sense of Scripture, but the Trinity is also there to help us make sense of love. In John 1, or in 1 John he writes this letter to the church, and he says what may be the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, because John is a poet. He says, God is love. God is love. See, in the Christian faith, we hold this idea, this belief, God is love. Not simply he is loving, or he's loving most of the time. He is love. At the heart, at the center of God is love. And many people, even outside of the Christian faith, they would say, oh, I, I don't believe in God, but I believe in love. Or if there is a God, he must be love. And we would agree, yes, we believe God is love. But I want to make a case that you can actually only believe that if you believe God is a complex unity of relationships like the Trinity. If you only believe in one God, a singular, simple monotheism, you cannot believe that God is love. Michael Reeves, a, a theologian who wrote the book Delighting in the Trinity, a fantastic book, he asks this vital question. What was God doing before he created everything? What was God doing before he created everything? And then Reeves passes the mic to Jesus, and Jesus answers this way. He says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. See, as Christians, we believe God was loving before the creation of the world. Through all of eternity, God has been loving the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if you believe in pure monotheism, you can't actually believe that God is love because love is predicated on another. So God could not have loved anything until he created the objects to which he wanted to love. The outward love is dependent on his creation. So if we wanted to believe that God is love, then we would have to say, well, creation must have always been there alongside of God for him to love. But with the Trinitarian view, God can be love because love exists at the center. Reeves puts it this way. He says, here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. 
Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is the root of who he is. See, what we believe when we say we believe in the Trinity is that for all eternity, the Son has been loving the Father who has been loving the Spirit. The Spirit has been loving the Son and loving the Father. There has been delight and joy and celebration at work in the triune God for all of time. And we believe that because God is love, or we believe that God is love because for all eternity, each part of the Trinity has been dancing in a complex unity of love. And Tim Keller, he uses the language of a dance that has been going on for all eternity. So this idea, it answers a question about scripture, and it also helps us understand how God is love, not just is loving, but has been and always will be love at all times. I love what Reeves says again, and he talks about creation. He says this, creation is about the spreading, the diffusion, and the outward explosion of love. So creation changes when we think about the world because it, it isn't that God made something to love. It's that God made something out of love. All that we see, we hear, we taste, we touch is an explosion of an eternal love that has always been going on and overflowed and boiled over into creation. So the doctrine of the Trinity, it answers the mystery of Jesus' divinity and the work of the Spirit and the Father. It allows God to be imminent here and transcendent. No, other ways, imminent. Imminent and transcendent. And the doctrine of the Trinity, it answers the mystery of how God can be love. It reveals that creation, the universe, you and me, we are an outpouring of the eternal love of God. And this is the joy of the doctrine of the Trinity, you could say. This is why we celebrate Trinity Sunday. We remember it keeps our our vision of Jesus as fully God, as the Spirit as fully God, and it keeps it centered that God is love. Without a Trinitarian view of God, we cannot actually hold that God is love, and we cannot properly hold that Jesus is God. So we need the doctrine of the Trinity to hold these answers for us. But there's something else that the doctrine of the Trinity does, and it goes back to my third assumption. The goal of theology is to know God more, not to know more about God. Because there's a danger that we could learn this and say, okay, checkmark, I've learned my Trinitarian theology. I'm never going to listen to that sermon again or any other talk. It's answered. But there's an invitation to the Trinity. Look at John 17, verse 26. It says this, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known that in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. So why do we learn about the Trinity? Why do we ponder on great mysteries? Why do we go to the place where language fails us, where we really can't comprehend? And I would say it's this. Jesus makes it clear. He says, we come to know God more so that his love will be in us. That our hearts can open to him more. We come to learn with our minds to open a door to our hearts so that Jesus can come and live in us. Because Jesus reveals to us that we are not just trying to add more knowledge to our heads, but fill our hearts with the eternal love of God. See, the good news of the Trinity is that through Jesus, 
through his work on the cross and the incarnation, in some beautiful and mysterious way, we are invited to participate. We are invited to experience the eternal love of the Father and of the Son through Jesus. And through that, we are invited to glorify and worship and celebrate and delight as the Trinity has been doing for all eternity. See, the Trinity, to me, it answers a vital question about worship. Because for years, I used to really struggle with the idea of worship. And I don't just mean singing songs and praising, though that's so important. I mean living life as worship to God. Because I would fall in on my baseline of a simple monotheistic God. And then that God, to me, became a tyrant. He created me, and now he says, worship me, glorify me. I demand it of you. And I was like, yeah, I love that I'm alive, but... Now I feel like a slave. I'm stuck in this. But a Trinitarian view of worship, it does something different because we're not singing songs just to honor. We're singing to participate, to be invited in, into the dance, into the song. We receive so that we can give. We worship God not because he's a tyrant who demands, but instead because in the Trinity, in the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they have been glorifying and praising and loving one another for all eternity. And so as we sing songs and worship, as we commit our work as worship to God, as we serve the poor, as we love one another, that is entering into the eternal love of the Trinity. I love what John, the poet, writes at the end of his letter to the church. He says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. When we love, and I mean truly love, in response to the love that we've received from God, we are entering into the dance. We are entering into the song. And for that brief moment, we glimpse the eternal love of the Trinity that existed before the world was made. And we do it through Jesus as sons and daughters adopted through Christ. And one day we believe that that love will cover the world like an ocean. And to me, that sounds like incredibly good news. So St. Peter's, my prayer for us today on this Trinity Sunday is this, that we come to know more about God, not for knowledge's sake, but so that we can love him more, experience his love, and worship and glorify him as he has taught us and invited us to do. May we go from today, having experienced the goodness of God, dancing and praising and worshiping and celebrating our God who is love, remembering that when we love, God is in us and his love is perfected in us. We are entering into a dance that has gone on and will go on for all of eternity.